All right, may you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to begin by reading the last verse in that chapter, and then for the rest of the day, we will be in chapter 13. What, what's going on? Oh, really? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 31. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. The Bible says here, after Paul has given an entire chapter dealing with the Holy Spirit, and specifically he zeroes in on spiritual gifts and how they operate within the body of Christ, how one member of the body ministers to another member. Not everybody has the same function. He says this, But covet earnestly the best gifts. It's a strange way to use the word covet, right? We're told in the Bible, Thou shalt not covet. And then you find this positive spin on it. Covet is another way to say desire, right? So obviously that can be a very evil thing. But in this case, you should earnestly desire or covet the best gifts. Why? Well, the gifts are given to us, right? You can think of gifts as abilities, right? Talents. God gives us various abilities in order to minister to other people. So it just makes sense. You should desire the best abilities so that you can better minister to people. And then at the end of the verse, he says, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And that's the reason for the title of our sermon today, The Excellence of Love. That excellent way that Paul is going to show us for the next chapter, the next 13 verses of chapter 13, it's all about how love excels and it is the more excellent way. So if you would bow your heads with me, let's pray together as we get started this morning. Father, thank you this morning, the opportunity to sing especially about that great love that lifted us. Lord, we were sinking deep in sin. Thank you for reaching down and pulling us out of that, bringing us into the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you might touch hearts. I pray you'd touch my tongue. I pray that God, for the next few minutes, you'd come down and meet with us and, and make this sub subject, this chapter, open it up to us, make it real to us. Let it sink in and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 13. We're talking about the excellence of love. We're going to look at the more excellent way of going about not just the Christian life, but life. Life. I, I sometimes fear to use that phrase, the Christian life. It makes us think that we have a one life, you know, from eight to five, and then when you clock out, you have a Christian life on Sunday, you know, and at home you have a home life. As, as a Christian, we just know one life, and that life is Christ. And the more excellent way to go about living that life is to be walking or living in love. Now, last week, we talked about perfecting your love. You can almost think of this as a continuation of that sermon, to be perfectly honest with you. I, the more I thought about that uh, sermon that I preached last Sunday, I told you at the beginning of it, after I preached it, there's a good chance I would go back and say, yeah, I could have said this, I should have said that. So this week, I get to put in the could have and should have. 
I get to kind of add on to that and, and kind uh, let's say, tease out some of those thoughts a little bit more, go a little deeper with it. There's three words, three words I think that everybody on the planet wants to hear. Three little words that change our lives. Can you guess what those three little words are? Kom ons brai. <laughs> those are the first three words that came to my mind. You know I've been living in South Africa long enough, right? When those are the three words that, that come to mind. Kom ons brai. For those of you that are not Afrikaans, that's, uh, let's come, let's barbecue, right? I think that would be the, the best three-word translation to put in there. Come, let's barbecue. Uh, now, if you're married, there's probably three different words that you're looking forward to hearing or maybe not looking forward to hearing, but they certainly change your life, and that is mother-in-law, right? <laughs> those, that'll change your life completely. Is, is, are those three words, or is that one word? Because it's hyphenated, some of you grammarians, maybe you know better than me, if that's one word or three words, whichever way, right? Three and one, one and three. It's, she's a trinity all by herself. <laughs> um, she'll change your life, that's for sure. But obviously, the words, the three little words I'm referring to, when these words leave your lips, they should really, you should really think before you say these three words, I love you. Those are life-changing words. And I think far too often we, we say them too lightly. And if you go from the other side, I think we receive them too lightly, right? Sometimes the person who says it really means it. The person receiving it, it just kind of bounces off of us and we don't let it sink in. That's a big deal when somebody says, I love you. What do you mean when you say that? What does that mean to you? How do you perceive it? We're going to talk more about that as we go through the sermon. I've, I've heard people try to explain love. I, I don't think that subject will ever be fully grasped or comprehended or explained. It's too deep. God is love. So when you begin to explain love, are you not trying to explain this very important attribute of God? You could just go on and on. People say love is a feeling. Well, there's truth to that. They say, no, no, love, love's not a feeling. Love is a choice. I've heard people explain that. And by the way, when I hear them explain it, what they say makes good sense, right? It's, it's not as if the various preachers and people that talk about it have no clue. I think they do. Love is a feeling. Well, yes, in one way. Love is a choice. Well, definitely a choice is involved. Let's make no doubt about that. Others will say, no, no, love is an action, Love is not something you feel, it's not something you think, it's not something you say, it's something you do. Love is a feeling, it's a choice, it's an action, and I say amen, amen, and amen. It's all of those things, is it not? I, I don't think you can separate those three things. And, and you remember last week I told you that one thing about perfecting love is that you have to complete love's cycle. I think that thought applies to this right we make a choice we we choose you you don't want to love accidentally you purposely you think about it and you say I'm going to make an effort to love this person all right there's your choice and then you go about doing something 
based on that choice. You don't just confess it, you carry it out. That's also last week's sermon. As you carry it out and, and show that love and manifest it to whoever's involved, it's going to produce a feeling, right? So do you see how those three things could work together? I, I think you could switch the order around. Because it's a bit of a circle, there's, there's a cycle to this, it might start with a feeling. What if somebody has made the decision, shown the action, and you have received the love, you're touched by it, it has moved you, and because of the feeling you received from being loved, it starts with a feeling, now you decide, this is how I like to feel, I wanna make other people feel like this. This made a difference in my life, I wanna make a difference in other people's lives. So the feeling sparked a choice, and then that choice led to an action. Do you see how this thing could just keep repeating itself over and over again? The more I've studied last week, this week for this particular sermon, studying this chapter, I am not discouraged and I'm not ashamed to tell you that the more I study this, the less I know about it. And, and what I mean by that is I'm finding that the well of love that you find manifested in the Bible, in God, in Christ, is so deep that the deeper you go, the more you realize there is to it. So I'm not ashamed to say that I'm still on the journey of learning more about it. Matter of fact, not discouraged at all. I'm rather excited about it. And I'll tell you what's exciting about it. As I delve deeper into it, I don't find God being upset with me. I don't feel the Lord wagging his finger at me going, shame on you. Why didn't you know this before? I think you're familiar with the song. I found it to be true as I've looked into this. I have found that he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Remember that song? And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I, I find that rather than being discouraged or frustrated or irritated, God is, God is also quite inviting. He has created this atmosphere that says, I'm so glad you're looking into this. I know what a difference this can make in your life. Keep, keep digging. Keep investigating. Keep learning. Let me show you more and more about this. And I'm asking you this morning for a few more minutes, would you continue this journey with me? I want to journey through this chapter. We, I want to go every verse in this chapter, see what we can learn about the excellence of love. So chapter 13 breaks into three parts. Verses 1 to 3 is going to produce our first point on your outline. For those of you that are filling it out, we're going to say this. Love is, and then there's a blank, love is essential. Love is essential. It is the most valuable part of your life. And I think you'll see this in verses 1 to 3. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. 
I want you to see in all three of those verses, Paul is pointing out that there's one key ingredient. In any recipe, you'll find several ingredients, but there's always one ingredient that must be in the dish. If you take it out of the dish, the dish falls apart. It won't taste right. It, it, it may not even cook. It's, there's always one ingredient that seems to stand out. And when we look at this chapter, there's one key ingredient. You have to have it. You can have all these other very important things. You can have, just look at verse 2. You can have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. Do you see all there? All mysteries. And you can have all knowledge. Do you see the all of that? And then he says you can have all faith. Verse 3, you can bestow all your goods. You can give your body to be burned. That is all of yourself. Do you see in verses 2 and 3? All, 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 the entire thing. The reason I point that out, that's going to interpret for us what verse 1 is about. Because I understand verse 1 sometimes lends itself to a little bit of confusion. People understand verse 1 is to be speaking about a heavenly prayer language. And I don't think verse 1 speaks of any strange prayer language that anybody on earth would use. What he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, this is Paul waxing eloquent. This is him in a fancy way saying, if I could speak all languages. Right? The reason we would interpret it that way is because of verses 2 and 3. That's what he goes on to say. He's presenting a hypothetical case. Do you understand that? Though I have all. Does anybody have all knowledge? Does anybody understand all mysteries or do they have all faith? It'd be difficult to say that every, everyone could have all of that or anyone could have all of that. So Paul is presenting a hypothetical, though. You see it in each verse, though I have. So even though this, if I don't have that, it all falls apart. So verse 1, let's say, hypothetically, I could speak all languages in the world. Why is that such a big deal for Christians? Have you ever wondered that? Other religions don't emphasize the importance of speaking different languages. Why is that a big deal in Christianity? In Islam, you emphasize one language, Arabic, right? If you speak Arabic, you're better. Any, any other language is less. Arabic is the chief language, and wherever that religion originates from, whatever the denomination is, they emphasize that language where it arose. Why in, in Christianity do we put an emphasis on being multilingual? Why is that such a big deal? Because the message of the gospel was meant for everybody. It's not meant to target any one people group. And that's why Paul puts such an emphasis on it in chapter 12, a little bit in 13, even into chapter 14. God gifts certain people. He allows them to learn a multitude of languages so that we can preach the gospel and explain the body of Christ, the mysteries of, of the faith. We can explain that to everyone, everywhere we go. That's why it's such a big deal. Now, let's say you have that ability and you can speak every language. In South Africa, some of you, I, you guys impress me. You can speak five, six, some of you, seven, eight languages. But if there's no love involved, what good is it? That's Paul's point. Let's say you do know that many languages. And what are you doing with it? 
If there's no charity, if there's no love, then the key ingredient is missing. Something's not going to be right about that. Something's missing. What if you have all, you understand all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith? You could remove mountains. Are you doing it? Are you moving any mountains with that faith? Is that, are those gifts making any difference? You see what Paul does, he goes on to explain this hypothetical. Notice this phrase in all three verses. Verse one, have not charity. Do you see that phrase? Verse two, at the end, have not charity. Verse three, at the end, have not charity. So here's the emphasis. He says, here are some spiritual gifts. Here are some abilities that you will find within the body of Christ. Various people can do these things to various extents. But if you don't have the key ingredient, these gifts actually can end up doing more damage than good. Watch what happens if you remove love. And this is how we know love is so essential. If you want to know how important an ingredient is, leave it out when you cook and then try to eat the dish. Oh man, sometimes that one little pinch of salt or whatever, it can change everything. I used to tell them in Malawi, what you guys know as pop in Malawi, we called it insima. And insima, you, Jesus said salt is good. <laughs> Pop just by itself, man, bless God, add some salt, add some butter, add something, right? But just blah, if it's just boiled, that something's wrong with that. You got to add a little salt. Same thing with this. These spiritual gifts are good and necessary, and I hope you have the whole list, hypothetically. I hope you can do it all, but remove the key ingredient of love, and what do you end up with? Paul says, if we have this, but we don't have that, look what happens. Verse 1, I'm become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Imagine somebody getting up. We don't have, you know, cymbals in the church, but imagine somebody coming up here, clang, 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 clang. Do you know some people like that, that when they begin to speak, it's just clang, clang, clang? They're annoying they're obnoxious, they're irritating. It's not that they're unintelligent. They might actually know what they're talking about, but because there's no love, they're talking simply so that they can be heard. They have the gift of gab. That's not a spiritual gift, but they have a gift, the gift of gab, and on it goes, on it goes, and instead of being profitable and edifying for the other people, they just talk and talk, and there's no filter, there's no discretion, there's no cutoff switch, they just talk and talk and talk, and Paul's saying, if I knew all languages, but if I don't care about people, if I'm not trying to help them, I'm going to end up annoying them. I'm going to end up being an obnoxious person to be around. Verse 2, if I have understanding of all mysteries, knowledge, and all faith, if I have not charity, I'm nothing. Remove the key ingredient, what do, what do you end up with? Number one, annoying. Number two, nothing. I'm going to say this would be the equivalent of being useless. How many of you ha have this problem? Now, I, I tread lightly here because I understand I'm... We're in a country where we, we have two extremes where people have plenty of wealth and then people have deep poverty. So I, I mean not to, to uh, touch on a sore spot here, but I'm sure you're familiar with the concept. Maybe some of you have this problem. You purchase something 
thinking that you're going to use it. And then you bring it home, you store it in your closet, or it goes into the garage and it stays in the box and you never end up using it. Do you understand? Maybe it's happened to you, but you understand the concept, even if it hasn't happened to you. Sometimes our life just gets filled with clutter, things that we think we're going to use, and they are very valuable things. It's a, the thing itself is great, but because it stays in the box and just takes up space in your garage or in your closet or somewhere in your house, it's completely useless. You see, it has intrinsic value in that you spent money, and if you, were, if you were to sell it, it would be worth something. But the way that you're using it, or let's say not using it, it's become useless. It has become the equivalent of nothing. It's as if it wasn't a part of your life because it's sitting around doing nothing. So as it pertains to understanding all mysteries, what does this equate to? Do you understand how the body of Christ works? Do you understand what it takes to be saved and then how the Lord works within a Christian, how the Lord will chastise that Christian, instruct that Christian, help him grow? Do you understand that? If you do and you're not communicating it to anybody else, it is just packed away in a box, sitting in a corner, doing nothing. Do you see how because there's no love, you're not concerned about helping that next person, this wonderful gift of knowledge and understanding, this word of wisdom, it's doing nothing. He says, though I have all faith and I could remove mountains, here's somebody that could, that could really make a difference in prayer and, and you believe the promise is wonderful, but are you praying on behalf of anybody else? Or have you left your prayer closet barren? You see, you take away the key ingredient of love. How can I use this gift to help somebody else? Take that out, it becomes useless. Verse three, this is a strange verse. Because on the surface, we think this is love. If I give all my goods to feed the poor, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a manifestation of love? Paul says you can do that without love. Think of that. Though I give my body to be burned, martyrdom, lay down my life on, on behalf of a cause, right? There are martyrs for any cause, not just Christ. But even, even people that are martyred for the faith, they can do that and not have love. How would that be possible? You can do those things for selfish purposes. I'll give all my goods to feed the poor. Why? So that people see me feeding the poor. And they go, wow, you're such a great guy. You're so generous. Look at how much you're doing. I'll lay down my body for the cause so that people will write books and sing songs and tell stories about how great of a a hero I was and the great exploits that I did. You see, the reason, the motive for doing these great things was something selfish. So Jesus spoke about this. He said, if you're going to give, don't blow the trumpet before you do it because you're doing it just to be seen of men. And if that's what you're doing it for, once you've given it, they've seen it, they applaud you, you have your reward. But let me ask you, when they applaud you and honor you for it, and that's what you were seeking, have they really helped you? It profits you nothing. That's what you see at the end of verse three. That honor that you're getting from them actually doesn't help you, it harms you because you think everybody approves, I must have done something good. Not really. The person who received all the stuff that you gave, they've, 
been helped. They're profited, but not you. One day you stand before the Lord and you find that those things that you did just to be seen of men, you get no reward for that. You had your reward down here. So the key ingredient in each case is doing these things, using these things for the right reason. Love becomes the motive. Why am I doing this? So this is the more excellent way. Sometimes we can get very concerned with how many spiritual gifts I have. Which gift do I have? You know, which gifts do I have? How many do I have? How can I get more? Here's a better way to go about it. Rather than worrying about counting your gifts, just become concerned about the people around you. When you look up the word love in the dictionary, it, lots of definitions, one of them will say to have a deep affection for someone or something. A deep affection. I want to be deeply affected by you. I am deeply concerned. Your life touches my life. It affects me. I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about you. I want to help you. So I don't care which gifts I have. I'm going to look at your cause, your life, and say, what can I do to improve it? What can I do to help you? What can I do to bless you? What can I do to bring you closer to God? And if I have that as my motive, if that love resides in my heart, then whatever gifts I have, I will use. Even if it's broken down, sad-sounding Afrikaans. I've gone out on the streets and preached to people in Afrikaans. If you guys ever want to enjoy, you know, have a good laugh, come with me while I do that. <laughs> that is one of the saddest conversations you'll ever hear. What? Ek wil saam met jou oor die evangelie praat. Die evangelie. Praat jy Afrikaans? Ja, net een bikkie. Ek probeer nou. This is where do you come from? Yeah, Ekas in Americana. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> and, and I stumble my way through the gospel and I explain to them, Christus op die kruis, hy het vir jou sonde betaal. Is that right? Yeah. Probably doesn't sound like good Afrikaans. People always tell me, you got a little Dutch accent. And? Now, now what if I were to say, oh, because it doesn't sound perfect, and people don't think I'm, you know, a rectabursian, then I'm not going to talk Afrikaans. Well, see, n- now it's all about how I sound. But if I'm really concerned about the person I'm talking to and they don't speak enough English to understand me speaking, I'll switch over to that other language as little as I know and use whatever I do have to try to help them. Does that make sense? You say, I don't understand how to explain every part of the, of the gospel and all the mysteries of the faith. I, I, I don't know how to pray and move a mountain. Okay, maybe you can move a clippy. Forget about starting with the mountain. Just try to move the little, the little stone. Start somewhere. Say, I don't have all that faith. Well, use what faith you do have. You say, what, how, what would move me to do that? If you're really concerned about making a difference in somebody else's life, for Christ's sake, you'll use whatever gifts you have. You don't take time to count the gifts. You use the gifts because of love. Love 
is essential to getting the job done. Verses four to seven, here's the next point. Love's etiquette. This is point two on the outline. Love's etiquette. God help me, I believe I've spelled this correctly. E-T-I-Q-U-E-T-T-E. Love's etiquette. Say, Pastor, I'm not familiar with the word etiquette. Quick English lesson, proper behavior. Proper behavior. I did have the word behavior but behavior can go one of two ways, right? So etiquette, not only does it start with an E, and I needed that for the sermon, but etiquette means proper behavior. So I, I, I like this word for this. Verses four to seven is going to explain love's etiquette. How does love behave? Now, love is a very tricky thing when we start to define it, try to describe it to somebody. I think because all of us, we grow up in different homes, we are treated differently, right? Our first perception of love is often what we receive from our parents, yes? And if not parents, then society. Maybe as, especially I think of kids that go to school, they, they're going to perceive love based on how they are treated by these people in their lives. You take a child that has been abused, they are going to perceive love much differently than a child that was spoiled by their parents, right? One, one child will think, if I didn't get beat today, then my mom and dad must love me a little bit today. And the next child thinks, if I get another pony, <laughs> right? Mom and dad bought me another ice cream and another pair of shoes, and now my mom and dad love me. You see how the perception of love can change. When I got saved, right, and I think this is all of our stories, to be honest. All of us have this story, but we'll all tell the story differently. When I got saved, I walked into the church. I brought with me all the baggage of my past life, which included a skewed concept of love. When I walked into the church and I thought, okay, I'm supposed to love these people. These people are supposed to love me. How did I understand love? I hadn't read the Bible. I knew that Christ died for me, but I didn't understand the depth of that love. I brought my depraved definition of love, which was the best I could manage at that time, and that's what I expected, and that's the way I tried to show my love to those people. When I told them, listen, I, I love you, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ, those words meant something different to me than what it probably meant to some of those older Christians in the church who had read the Bible 50 or 60 times and been saved for that many years, right? It, it means something different to all of us. For some people, when they say love, they, they equate it to this, love equals compliance. In, in some people's minds, love is manifested because the person I'm dealing with will always say yes and never say no to everything I want. We see this often in children, right? If mom and dad say yes, oh, they love me. Mom and dad says no, why do you hate me? Booty, I don't hate you, you hate me. Calm down, you little brat, I'm about to show you how much I love you. Now stop it, right? <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't, and even there, right? A child, when a child is, is getting that pox law, he doesn't perceive that as love, but the Bible says whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That, that is a manifestation of love. But 
Again, it needs to be done properly and with the right motive and so forth. So love can be tricky. Some, some see love as compliance. Just be agreeable. That's love. For some people, love is this. Be my nurse. Be my nurse. That's all I want from you. Listen, I, I, I have problems. I have needs, whether they be health, business, whatever it is. You're my assistant. You're my nurse. You're here to just take care of me. And as soon as I feel okay and I'm able to take care of myself, please step back, get out of my way. Love equals being my nurse. For some people, love is strictly a bedroom word. The only time they use it, the only way they think of it is in in relation to the bedroom. For them, the word love equals surrender your purity. Compromise your standards. Forget marriage. I have needs. And for them, if those bedroom type things are not involved, then love is gone. There's so much more to love than just that. So when we as Christians say, I love you, what should we mean, right? We all have our own perception of it based on our past, on our baggage. But when we step into the realm of of the Bible, let's try to clean out our mind and allow the Bible to show us exactly what love should look like. What should it do? What should it not do? Verses 4 to 7 will help. Charity which is another word for love, charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth long. I'm not going to do this on every one of these uh, characteristics, but for this one, I'm just going to read you the definition of patience because suffereth long, that's the old English way of saying be patient. I like the old English here, suffers long. It really describes it, but here's what it means to be patient listen to this, able to accept or tolerate delays, problems, or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. When you tell someone, I love you, then they have a right to expect this from you, that you will not get annoyed or anxious when things don't go your way patient for me I I got right to there and I put the pen down and I walked away and went and prayed for a while (laughs) I said oh God I don't know if I have a lot of love (laughs) I need a little more of this and by the way before we go any further can I just say I want to link in another sermon I preached a while back I preached it about a month ago uh, the sermon was called to live is Christ You guys remember that? And how every part of life, if you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can find Jesus as an example for every part of your life. I did a little bit of, I think this is algebra, I think. I did some math here. You guys check my math, you you mathematicians. God is love, right? God equals love. Are we good for that? All right, God, I'm I'm putting it in mathematical terms, right? God equals love, right? Next, Next equation, God equals Jesus in human form equals God. No, no, I'm saying God in human form. I'm sorry. God in human form equals Jesus. There we go. Are we good there? Okay. So God equals love. God in human form equals Jesus. Ergo, Jesus in human form equals love. I'm good so far? So if I study the life of Christ, guess what I'm going to find? Everything in verses 4 to 7. 
you're reading a description of how Jesus behaved. What does it mean to suffer long? Look at how Jesus put up with the disciples. Look at how he put up not just with his friends but with his enemies. Study his life. You'll find out how love behaves. Proper etiquette. It suffers long. The next thing, it is kind. Love is kind. Going out of your way. Can can I use the word nice to be nice to people? By the way, you should be nice to anybody. Kind, loving kindness can be manifested to anybody. The people that are kind to you, you should be kind back, but even the people that don't deserve it. And this is where I think the life of Christ makes love shine through even more. The Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus, please heal my daughter. Woman, I'm not sent to, the, to your people. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not meet to give the children's bread to the dogs what does Jesus do that woman said even the dogs eat from the eat the crumbs that fall he said you know what I'll help anyway it wasn't her time but she got some help anyway the woman at the well she was living in sin she was living with a man she wasn't married to you know what Jesus did he took time to talk to her help her That woman, I think of this woman crawling through the crowd, grabbing onto the hem of Jesus' garment. She's scared. She knows she's kind of overstepping a little bit. Jesus is on the way to help somebody else, a dying girl. And she stops the the whole caravan, if you will, and grabs on. And she's a little worried. Jesus stops and looks down and says, who touched me? And he sees the woman down there on her hands and knees, cowering. What does he say? Daughter, be of good comfort. That's just kind. He could have snapped at her. Woman, don't you know I'm busy? Don't you know I'm on my way to help somebody else? I don't have time for this. He was the personification of kindness, the man at the pool of Bethesda. Just in, just in case you were wondering, I gave you three examples with women. Jesus was kind to men as well. The, the man at the pool of Bethesda, he'd been laying there for 38 years, and he said no what have you been laying here so long for no man is here to pick me up and take me to the water and Jesus said you don't need the water I'm the living water kindness one story I think really brings it out the maniac of Gadara are we familiar with that there was actually two of them in the book of Matthew you find out there were two of them but in the book of Mark we read about one of them here's what's fascinating about that story you know they were filled with a legion of devils right you guys remember that And then Jesus sends the legion out. It goes into the pigs, and the pigs run down, and they commit hogicide. Off off they go down the mountain. You know what's brilliant about that story? Jesus gets into a boat. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Right There was a storm, right? Jesus had to say, peace, be still. He calmed the storm. They get to the other side. You know what he did? He got out. He went into the mountains, into this graveyard where the tombs were, healed the maniac of Gadara, sends the unclean spirits out. You know what Jesus did right after that? He got back in the boat and went to the other side. He went all the way across that that body of water just to help some lunatic, just to help somebody that couldn't help himself. I don't know of a better word to explain that other than kindness. That was an extremely nice thing to do. Would we describe your life like that? 
kindness. Verse 4 says charity suffers long and is kind. Charity, and then we have some things it doesn't do. It, It envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Let me break that down into maybe some simpler English. Envy, I think you're familiar with. That is, I don't get jealous when somebody else is excelling or prospering, things are going well for them. I don't get that irritated feeling in my heart. I'm happy for them. I don't sit around complaining going, why not me? Why not me? I can actually rejoice because they're happy. I can rejoice with them that do rejoice. Vaunteth not itself. It doesn't boast. It doesn't hand all of its goods to feed the poor and then say, hey, did you see I fed the poor? It's not going to boast about it. It's not puffed up. It's not arrogant. It's not arrogant. You can see how these things overlap a little bit. When Jesus came, he was not interested in personal gain. He could have taken advantage of his amazing power to do miracles to prosper his own situation. People came to him and said, we want to make you the king after he fed the 5,000. They said, we'll make you the king right now. Jesus easily could have said, go ahead, I deserve it. Yeah, man, I just gave food to over 5,000 families. I think I deserve a pat on the back. I deserve some recognition. You know what Jesus did? They came and said, we'll make you the king. He slipped away. He said, I... I've got business elsewhere. The Father wants me to go minister somewhere else. I didn't do this for the recognition. I will make myself of no reputation. It's not about public perception. It's about helping people. It's about helping people. Verse 5, it doth not behave itself unseemly. Old English, what do we say today? It's not rude. There's another way to say this. And, and actually, I think what we have here in, in this old English, it works very well. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Unseemly is inappropriately. It does not behave itself inappropriately. So if you love someone or the, the people you're dealing with, you look at what would be appropriate in that situation and then you do accordingly. This, this, I think, is a lovely thought. You look at verses four to seven, you cannot just take one attribute and say, well, I'm patient. So therefore, as long as I don't, I can be rude as long as I'm patient. You see, you can't just take one and say, I have patience, so I can be rude. No, no, you, one thing needs the other. These things need to mix and match and, and work together. This is part of having perfect love. You can't just have one or two parts. You need all of these parts working together. You're gonna see it in just a moment how love rejoices in the truth. So people say, well, what I said was right. Yes, but just because you're right doesn't mean you can be rude about it. Do you see how it works together? It behaves itself, it does not behave itself unseemly. So it's gonna act appropriately given the situation. It says in verse five, seeketh not her own. Husbands and wives, kids, this, this is very relevant in the home. Very relevant. Seeketh not her own. Love does not insist on getting its own way. It doesn't say, I have to have it my way. Love will take into account how somebody else feels. It is willing to compromise, not outside of the realm of righteousness, right? It's not going to sin, 
But it says, you don't, it, I don't have to have my way every time. I'm happy to let you have your way. You say, where would we see this in Christ? I'm gonna step outside of the life of Christ and give you an example. In Exodus, God said, Moses, stand back. I'm going to end this generation of Jews that worship the golden calf. Remember that? Moses said, but God, you would be well within your rights to do that. Instead, could you have mercy and let them live? You know what God said? Okay, we'll do it your way. Now think about that. It's not as if God had a bad way and Moses gave him a better way. There were two right ways to handle that situation. Kill off that generation, start again with Moses. That was perfectly right. God could have done that. But Moses, simply because Moses loved that generation, God said, well, okay, I'll take you, Moses, your heart, what affects, what touches your life, and I'll make a decision based on what would make you happy. If, isn't this the perfect illustration of God being love? He takes into account how somebody else feels and then makes a decision. It says, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Say, what does that mean? It's not irritable. It's not irritable. It's not easily provoked. It's not waiting for somebody to say something so that you can fly off the handle. Jesus was able to be provoked, right? Jesus manifested anger, didn't he? He overthrew tables. He made a cord and whipped people. But trust me, he didn't, he didn't get to that point easily. They had pushed him and pushed him and pushed him until that, what, that became the right thing to do. He had to put his foot down somewhere. And sometimes we do have to speak up and say something. Sometimes we do have to put our foot down. But it should not be easy. You shouldn't be quick to fly off the handle. Not easily provoked. I'll, I'll give you a different word. You, you shouldn't be given to temper tantrums. Verse 5, at the end of it, it's not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. What is this? Thinketh no evil. Have you ever done this? Somebody does you wrong, you go home, and all you can think about is how you're going to get back at them. And you hold on to that grudge for days and weeks, and here we are, what? What's it been? Six months? Two years? How long ago was it that that person hurt you? Five years? How long ago was it when dad or mom treated you wrong? 30 years? 40 years? And all you can think about is how much you hate that person. And if I see them again, this is what I'm going to do. And you have allowed that root of bitterness to, to go deeper and deeper into your heart because you keep dwelling on it. The only way you're going to overcome that hatred right you overcome evil with good you're going to have to start thinking about a way to love that person not how do I get back at them how can I minister to that person not how can I make them feel as miserable as they made me feel thinketh no evil verse 6 rejoiceth uh, rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoiceth in the truth we're going to take both of these things together Rejoices not in iniquity. 
there are plenty of people that find pleasure in sin, right? They, they rejoice when they're out with the, with the guys, with their friends, you know, partying. And, and, and people sometimes will justify sinful behavior by saying this, well, at least we had a good time. You know, we were just blowing off steam. So they say things like this, if you're happy, I'm happy. Now think about how deep that statement goes. If you're happy, I'm happy. Do whatever makes you happy. I have heard parents say this to their children. As long as they're happy, booty, sissy, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. And moms and dads, because they, they do love their kids, that's, but that's that strange, skewed human version of love. That's not biblical, godly love. Are you with me, folks? To say, if you're happy, I'm happy, that when we look into the Bible, how do we find love being manifested? I want to see what's best for this person. And that might include me saying, I'm glad you're happy, but this is not the right kind of happy. There's a better happiness. There's a different way to go about being happy. This is going to end up hurting you in the long run. And I'm concerned about you in the long term, not just temporary happiness, not just pleasure in sin for a season. But I want to see life turn out in a way that you won't regret. Rejoices not in iniquity, but in the truth. One thing you'll find when you study the life of Christ, l- let me say it different. One thing you will not find in the life of Christ, do you ever remember him laughing at a dirty joke? Do you remember him ever saying something with a little in- innuendo or using bad language in order to make people laugh? He never did that, did he? Not only do we learn from what Christ did, we can also learn by what he didn't do. You never see him rejoicing in that type of behavior. I fully believe, I'm convinced, we don't read anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where Jesus made jokes. We do find some humorous things he said, but not like he full-on told a joke. However, I believe that he, was, he had the kind of personality where he could appreciate good humor. Now, here's why I say that. Jesus was fully aware of the irony of life. He often pointed that out. You can hear it in his sermons and the illustrations that he used. And anybody that is intellectual as Jesus was, right? He's a smart guy. He could see what was happening. He could see the irony of life. He could see how sometimes the world gets everything upside down, right? They they think you're living, they're actually dying. And he says, if you die to yourself, you'll live. Jesus can see things like that. That convinces me he had the personality that is capable of humor. So I'm sure there were times that he sat around and laughed with his disciples. But I never read anywhere that would indicate he laughed about something dirty. That's not the kind of guy he was. He said, but these are my buddies. These are my friends. If I don't laugh at their jokes, if I don't go to those places, I won't have that relationship with them. That relationship might need to change. It might need to end so that you can fulfill and have perfect love. The next thing, verse 7, again, we'll take it all together. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. All things. You can see the emphasis there. To bear all things, I will help you carry the load. 
Endure all things. I'll go through it with you. Believeth all things. See how the, pal- uh, the uh, passage balances this. I'm not going to be gullible and believe everything you tell me. I'm going to believe all things that are true. Right? Do you see that in the verse before? I rejoice in the truth. So I'm going to believe all things that are true. I- I'm, I'm going to believe all of God's promises as they apply to your life. Now watch this. I'm also going to believe in you. To the extent that it's true, I'm going to believe in you. And belief goes together with hope. Hope is an expectancy. What do I expect to happen? If you love somebody, don't you want their life to turn out as good as it can? Isn't this right? Okay, What's, what, is it, what, what do we mean when we say as good as it can? We want them to fulfill the will of God. We want them to be happy in Christ. So I'm going to take the promises of God and I'm going to expect and hope and patiently wait for those things to happen in your life. And I will walk the path with you until I see those things happening in your life. That is bearing all things and enduring all things. So here's one phrase that will, I think, explain verse 7. I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. When I tell somebody I love you, what, what am I saying? I'll be there for you. Think about this. The Bible says that man without God, he's without hope, right? That before you come to Christ, you're without hope, you're without God. Hopeless. God, when he looked down on the earth, it says that he saw none that was good, no, not one. He said every imagination of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. God could have looked down at mankind and said, forget it, I'm done with you. I'm not gonna walk this path with you. You're on your own. I forsake you. He could have done that. But in our sinful condition, as messed up as we were, you know what God said? You're worth saving. You're worth my time. I am going to do all that I can to help you come right I'll be there for you. So you know what he did? He comes down, lives 33 years of a sinless life, and then goes to a cross, and he says, now I've done all that I can. I've carried the cross. I bore your sins in my body. I endured all the suffering and shame of those that hated me because I fully believe that even though with men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. As bad as you are, you can be saved, you can be changed, you can walk with God, you can enjoy the Lord, you can fall madly in love with Him and perfect your love. Jesus believed that you were capable of that. If He didn't, I don't think He would have gone all the way to the cross. Now let me ask you this. Do you believe that the people around you are capable of growing as Christians? Do you believe the people in your home are capable of change? You know where a lot of marriages and relationships, father to son, mother to daughter, workmates at work, do you know where a lot of relationships fall to pieces? We give up on them. So I I don't think that you're ever going to come right with this, and that's where our love stops. Love bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. It says, I'll be there for you. I've given you a verse at the bottom of the, of the uh, outline, Mark 10, verse 21, because I think this particular story from Jesus' life really brings this out. This is Jesus with, with the rich young ruler. 
The rich young ruler has come to him and said, what, what good thing should I do to have eternal life? Jesus explains to him about the commandments and then he's lacking something. Jesus beholding him loved him. Do you see that? This rich young man, he had made an effort, but it wasn't enough. Jesus could have said, you tried, you failed, I'm done. You know how many times our love falls short like that? You tried, you failed, I did as much as I'm out of here. Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven, come take up the cross and follow me. Despite this man's shortcoming, and he had them, he didn't give up on him. Your spouse has shortcomings. Your children have shortcomings. Your boss, your workmates, your employees, they have shortcomings. Your prof, the professor, your students, some of you are the professor, they have shortcomings. Your pastor, he has shortcomings. You know what love will do? Love will say, okay, I'll patiently wait for God to work on him. I'll do whatever I can to help him come right. I'll be there for you. I believe that a change can happen. That's part of love. It's part of love. I've given you, you see on the outline, under number two, I've given you four blank lines. You may not need all four. Maybe you just need two. Maybe you need six. I don't know. All right? I've just arbitrarily chosen four lines. Let me illustrate why I've done that. I have never had petrol put into my car and then had water added into that. I don't know if you, any of you have ever had that horrible experience of water in the petrol, but it can really mess up your car, right? Water and oil don't mix, they say. So when that water, and I, I asked my son-in-law, he's a car nut, so Steon explained the whole thing to me. I wish he was here to explain it, so I will sound ignorant as I explain it. But when you have petrol in the car, that's what moves the car down the road, right? You can have a car, a lecker, beautiful, moy car, and all the parts are there. If you don't have petrol, it's not going anywhere, right? So you can think of the petrol as love. You think of all the parts as the spiritual gifts. I got a great steering wheel, a wonderful motor. I got the you know, shiny exterior, great. All of that's great, but you're not going anywhere. It's useless without love. But if you introduce a little bit of water into the petrol, what will happen is as you're going down the road, you know, the pistons, they fire because the petrol goes in, a little explosion happens, and it moves the pistons. If water gets into there, it doesn't fire correctly. So you're going down, and it starts to get misfires and a bit jumpy, and if you get too much water in there, the car will completely stop. And as Steon explained it to me, if it's just water, that car, the, the parts in the car could eventually rust. You find yourself on the side of the highway just broken down. Now, you see, a little bit of water, you may not even notice it, but the more water you get in the petrol, the worse your car will run, the worse the car will sound. And it, it's really obnoxious and annoying and gets useless and doesn't help. Profits mean nothing. Are you getting me? 
What you need to do is check the tank and see is your petrol pure? Do you have perfect, complete petrol or is it a partial petrol? Do you maybe have a mix of petrol, love, and water, a little bit of selfishness? We just read a description of love. There's things that love does. There's things that it, sh- that it doesn't do. So whichever item you are failing on, what I'd like for you to do is take a moment, not now, but I don't, maybe it's already jumped to your mind. Feel free if you already have the answer, but take a few minutes later and examine your heart and say, you know what, as I go through the list, that's what's making my car spit and sputter. This is why my life keeps breaking down and I get stuck on the side of the highway and I feel down in the dumps. I feel useless. I feel uh, like I'm not helping anybody. It's because I lack this or maybe I've introduced that and it shouldn't be there. These blanks will represent the things you need to work on to perfect your love. Because you might have some of the things right, but if some of the things are wrong, the oil and the water doesn't mix loves etiquette it has a proper behavior you need to have all of it and then finally as we finish the chapter verses 8 to 13 point number 3 point number 3 love always excels E-X-C-E-L-S love always excels love always wins it will always conquer it it will always be the best thing verse 8 isn't this a wonderful way to start it Charity never fails. Isn't that a good way to say it? Charity never fails. It will always win. Now, I believe what Paul intends to say here is that charity doesn't have an expiration date. It will never run out. When we get into eternity, love will still be there. These other things that he's going to talk about, faith, hope, right, prophecies, tongues that's other languages all of that will stop one day but love will continue throughout eternity so love is going to win as far as the longevity other things will stop love won't I think that's what Paul's getting at you're going to see it as we go through the verses quickly now but I think there's another thing that's also true about this no matter what the situation is that you're dealing with husband to wife, parent to child, if you're at work, if you're a student, if you're trying to deal with the politics of this country, if you're trying to deal with COVID regulations, whatever the situation is, love is always going to be the right choice every single time. How do I handle this? Let me factor in these characteristics of love and let me see if that'll help. Love will always be the right choice. When your wife yells at you, how do you respond to that? quickly think of love right quickly say ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, what does love teach me to do uh, love never fails how do I not easily provoked <sighs> okay I'm gonna love her yeah it'll help when the kids drive you nuts I mean they have gone beyond they found your last nerve they took it out played with it lit a firecracker under it and, oh, God what do I do with these blessed little angels <laughs> love them bear all things endure all things hope all things I hope this ends hope all things 
when your boss is unreasonable, when he gets angry for no good reason, how do you deal with that? Love will always be the right answer. It should always be in there. When your pastor preaches too long, love him anyway. <laughs> know that he means well. He's trying to help. You know I slipped that in there on purpose, right? And just to distract you from the pastor preaching too long, when your mother-in-law comes over for a visit and won't leave, love is the right answer. <laughs> love never fails. Now what's he getting at? Verse 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Now what does he mean, they shall fail? It's not, it's not to say that the things that God has predicted won't come to pass. He's, he's not getting at that. Jesus said that uh, the prophecy of the Scripture cannot be broken. So it can't fail. When he says fail in this sense, the prophecies will eventually run out. They will be fulfilled, and at that point, they cease to be a prophecy. Now it's history. See, so they have an expiration date. So the prophet said it a thousand years ago. Bam, it comes to pass. It's done. See, but even after that prophecy has been fulfilled, love will keep on going. Love doesn't have an expiration date. So whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Right now, there are a multitude of languages. Various Bible societies, we pay attention to this because like I said earlier, we want to reach all languages. They, they say that there's over 6,500 languages, known languages in the world today. One day, God is going to reverse the Tower of Babel and there will only be one language. This is a, one of the prophecies, actually, that you find in the book of Zechariah, also Zephaniah. So tongues, plural, shall cease. One day, we'll all speak the same language. Wow. South Africa needs that to happen quick, quick. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. What does he mean? Knowledge will vanish away. Does it mean in eternity we all become ignorant? We all just walk around going, oh. <laughs> you know, for some people, this has already <laughs> come to pass, right? When, when he says knowledge shall vanish away, verse 9 will explain this. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So when Paul's talking about knowledge vanishing, he's talking about this partial, limited knowledge that we now have. What's my name? Mike. How do you know? I told you, right? Uh, ask me how I feel about you. I'll tell you. But you have to go based you have to go on what I'm saying. That's limited. You're limited to what I've revealed to you. Who was the first president of the United States? Forgive me, I don't know the first president of South Africa, otherwise I'd use that as an example. The first president of America was George Washington. I know that as a historical fact. I wasn't there for that. I didn't see that. I'm walking by faith, not by sight. Right? So my knowledge is partial. I can only know what has been shown to me or told to me about the past, about what's going on in your heart. One day, I'll know that completely. 
One day I'll have a complete, perfect knowledge. Prophecies will be fulfilled. So right now we, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But one day when Jesus comes, he's the perfect. When, when he comes, all these partial things are done away with. The prophecies are fulfilled. We have glorified bodies and we have this complete knowledge. Verse uh, 10 11 I'm sorry in verse 11 he says when I was a child I spake as a child I understood as a child I fought as a child but when I became a man I put away childish things for now we see through a glass darkly so right now when we look through the glass what's coming ahead what's the glass it's the bible it's it's a record of God's revelation God said these things are going to happen in the future well as it pertains to prophecy all I know about the future is what God said would happen so I, I don't know all the details I can't see all the specifics so I'm looking through the glass darkly but then he says but then face to face one day Jesus is going to be standing right there in front of me and I'll no longer have to go by Matthew Mark Luke or John I can stand right there with him talk with him literally walk with him and have him explain the whole thing to me it says in verse 12 now I know in part but then shall I know even as also I am known God does he not look on the heart God can see my heart it's not as if God is up there in heaven saying Mike tell me how you feel God knows how I feel now he still wants to hear from me but it's not as if I'm hiding anything from God he looks on the heart. Doesn't the Bible tell us this? Man looks on the outward appearance. That's all we can see. We're limited. God looks on the heart. One day, after the resurrection, after our glorified bodies have come, then we have this complete, perfect ability. We, we have this knowledge, but only after Jesus has come. In verse 11, it, there's a great illustration. When I was a child, I acted like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul is referring to the resurrection. One day we'll be fully grown. One day we'll have that perfect body. I think that's what he's trying to teach us here. But there's something very practical about this. Have you guys ever seen this with kids? And many of you in, in the church today, you do have children. So you know how this goes. When your kid learns a new skill, they cannot wait to show mom and dad. Isn't that fun? Mom, dad, check this out, check this out. <laughs> They try to whistle. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> and then one day, it comes out. And you go, oh, booty, that's great. You're like, bless their heart. That, that took a lot of effort. But they whistled. Have you ever seen a child try to snap? <laughs> you know, they work on it. They end up just clapping, you know. <laughs> and then they finally learn snapping. And then you see your kid walking around the house. <laughs> they, they just think they're awesome and, and rightfully so right that's what we expect I'm, I'm not condemning that I'm promoting that please cheer when your kids do that yeah whatever the new skill or talent is man they they should be excited they learned they grew we should be excited when people grow we should be excited about that but eventually, eventually, when a person grows up and matures, you know what they start to do? They say, I know how to whistle and snap. 
Now, how can I improve somebody else's life with this? You don't see adults walking around through town going, hey, 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 uh, Manir, come here, watch this. <laughs> we don't show up. You're a grown man. What are you showing off for? Do you see the point? One of the marks of a mature Christian is not saying, look at all my gifts, look what I can do. I can snap, I can whistle. God didn't give us these abilities so that we can get recognition. He gave us these abilities so that we can add to somebody else's life. Now, how can I take these things and be a blessing to someone else? That's part of growing up. That's part of perfection, perfecting the love. Verse 13, and now abideth faith. One day faith will end. Faith will end in sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. One day we'll walk by sight, not by faith. Faith has an end. Now abideth faith, hope. What's that? I'm expecting something to happen based on what God promised. But one day those promises will be fulfilled and hope will come to an end. Faith, hope, and charity, these three. You need all three right now. But the greatest of these is charity. Why? It never ends. After I see Christ, after all the promises are fulfilled, the love will only get better. Watch this. Faith, hope, cannot be perfected in this life. Faith and hope cannot be perfected in this life because we have to wait for these things, right? We, we can't force these issues, but your love can be perfected even now. Think about that. Can any of you learn all languages? No. Can you achieve all knowledge? No. Can you have all faith all the time to remove every mountain? No. But can you love somebody completely, perfectly, with as much as in you is? Yes. That's why love is so excellent. It excels these other things. It has no expiration date, and you can perfect your love even now. I'm going to end by telling you just two quick stories, and we'll be done. I want to give you something personal that I believe illustrates the excellency of love. Because faith and hope and speaking languages and knowledge, all of these things are great and necessary. But I've seen how love has lifted me. Growing up, I didn't have a great relationship with our oldest. The relationship with our oldest daughter was a bit strained. A lot of that was dad's fault because dad was still learning a lot about love. One day, this is a few years ago, our oldest sat me down. She called the meeting. The Lord had touched her heart and changed her. She sat me down and she said, Dad, I know we've had our problems in the past, but I want you to know something. I'm very concerned about you. And this wasn't in a negative way. I was going through a lot of health troubles and just emotional struggle, everything. And, and she said, Dad, I, I'm really concerned about you. I'm touched by what you're going through and I just want you to know no matter whatever happens, no matter what you say or do or decide, I love you and I'm going to be there for you 
You're my dad. I'm your daughter. Nothing will ever change that. I love you unconditionally. You ever have those moments in life that you look back on and you can see that that was the pivot? That, 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 that's, that's one of those mile markers where life just changed. We all have those, right? That's one of those mile markers for me. When my daughter sat me down and devoted to me, committed to me, confessed to me, Dad, I want to love you like the Bible tells me to love somebody. You know what I've seen over the past few years? Those were not just empty words. She meant it. And it changed my life. It woke me up. It, it provoked me, listen to this, it provoked me to love and to good works. Isn't that how it's supposed to operate? Her love provoked me to learn more about love. Now that's what she did for me and it changed my life. One other story. Because her story, my story, it all goes back to a common origin. 24 years ago, the Holy Spirit showed up and he sat me down. He called the meeting. I didn't. And he said, Mike, we've had some issues. You've made some mistakes. But I want you to know, I love you. And Christ went to the cross and he died for you and all of God's love is available to you through Christ. We, what, we just want you to know, we're here for you. And we believe that if you'll let us into your life, we can change you and make something out of you and use you and walk with you and fellowship with you. We want, we, you understand the we. The Holy Spirit on the behalf of God the Father and God the Son is saying, we want to be in your life. Would you please let us in? We're gonna love you exactly the way you see it spelled out. In the 3rd of August, 1996, I took the Holy Spirit's proposal and I said, Lord, I want some of that love. I want to be loved like that. That's where it started. That's where it started. Has there been that pivotal point? You see, those are those mile markers in life where you look back and you say, that changed me. You know where those mile markers are in my life as I look back? God showed me his love. My daughter showed me her love. As I look back at the mile markers, every time, love excelled. There's something about love in every one of them. Now, what about you? Can you look back and see where love lifted you and changed the direction of your life? I strongly encourage, take some time, fill out the list, work on perfecting this love. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a few moments.
Thank you for your patience this morning. Thank you for enduring unto the end. When it comes to the subject of of love, I, I think it's worth our time. May I ask you this morning to search deep, deep in your heart and look at where you can go a little further with your love. It's essential. Without it, all the other abilities really don't make much of a difference. Love, you don't get to define it. Love has a certain etiquette. We need to conform to it. And love will always win the day. It's always the right choice. Love will make that difference in your life and in somebody else's. Before I pray, can I just ask, maybe someone's here today and this morning the Holy Spirit has come by and tapped on your heart and said, I want to meet with you. I want to talk with you. I want to show you just how much I love you. Now let me change you. Maybe today is that pivotal point. If, if that's the case, would you please, right after we're done, right after we're done, please just come find me. Pull me aside. We'll talk privately. I won't embarrass you. But I'd love to help you understand better just how much Christ loves you. Father, thank you this morning for teaching us a little bit more about love. There's certainly more that could be said. But this chapter, what a magnificent chapter. Lord, even right now today, we can experience perfect love. We can love someone to the uttermost as much as we can. Show us, Lord, give us the opportunities. Open the doors. Help us to do more than just make the choice or feel it, but act upon it. Father, if there's somebody here today that has never accepted your love, the love that you showed there on the cross, might this be the day, that pivotal point, where everything changes for them. How great it is to have somebody love you fully, completely. Thank you for that great love. Father, we thank you for this and ask you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.